Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Thursday, February 2nd, Groundhog Day. Good to have you on board, everybody. Today on the show, the Vice Commandant of the Coast Guard will talk about the Coast Guard strategic outlook. So joining me from Washington, D.C., from Coast Guard headquarters today is uh, Admiral Steve Poulin. He is the Vice Commandant of the Coast Guard, the number two uh, officer in the U.S. Coast Guard, and uh, Admiral Poulin, great to have you on the show. Thanks for thanks for your time. Yeah, Bill, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for everything you're doing to uh, illuminate and amplify uh, the issues for our sea services. Thanks much. Sir, before we jump into questions, I just want to mention a few highlights from your career. You graduated from the Coast Guard Academy in 1984. You earned a law, a law degree, magna cum laude, from the University of Miami Law School a master's in environmental law from George Washington Law School, and a master's in strategic studies from the Army War College. You've served on Coast Guard cutters, and as a response officer, you commanded Coast Guard Sector Mobile, Alabama, where you directed operations in Mississippi, Alabama, and the Florida Panhandle. And during that time, you were the incident commander for the Deepwater Horizon oil spill response operations in 2010. You later served as Judge Advocate General and Chief Counsel of the Coast Guard. And before becoming Vice Commandant, you commanded the Coast Guard Atlantic area. So what jumps out at me from your resume is the blending of operational knowledge and legal expert expertise. Is that an unusual career path for a Coast Guard officer? Well, I think a little bit yes and a little bit no. So if you compare it to the other sea services or the other military services, it would be a unique career path. Uh, because the other services have a judge advocate general corps, uh, with the exception of the Marine Corps. And so as, if you come in as a judge advocate, you stay within that core, and there are limited opportunities uh, to move outside that judge advocate general corps. The Coast Guard doesn't have a JAG corps. So all our lawyers, like all of our officers, are line officers. And as a Coast Guard officer, we value uh, both a specialty and operational specialty and a subspecialty. And I happen to be very blessed that uh, I was picked to go to the Coast Guard's funded legal program. I've been commissioned for about five years, uh, had a lot of operational time under my belt at that point, went to law school, became a judge advocate. Uh, but that created an opportunity for me, like many Coast Guard officers, where you can go in and out of that subspecialty, having operational opportunities, uh, including operational command, and then coming back in and serving in that uh, subspecialty. So. Not necessarily unique uh, for the Coast Guard, but certainly unique if you were looking at this from the lens of the other military services. Yeah, definitely different from how the Navy manages its uh, Judge Advocate General Corps and, and the other services as well. So, sir, our, our listeners um, know that Proceedings has a very high regard for the Coast Guard. Uh, it's the smallest of the sea services. It punches above its weight in our pages. And I think also... Uh, in terms of uh, the impact of a, of a small service. I've said this before, but one fact that uh, always astounds me is the Coast Guard is about the size of the New York City Police Department, roughly 40,000 or so people, uh, and yet you have a global mission. Uh, can you describe some of the key functions of the Coast Guard? Uh, sh sure. Um, and that 40,000 that you reference is active duty personnel. Uh, so we have 6,000 reservists, uh, we have about 8,000 civilian employees, and then we have uh, Coast Guard auxiliaries. All of those uh, we consider to be the Coast Guard workforce. So while it's easy to segregate out uh, active duty members in that comparison, 
I just want to make a point that we are a much more complete and fulsome Coast Guard uh, than that. And everybody in our total workforce is critically important to executing the missions of our service. Uh, so we have 11 statutory missions. When you talk about 11 statutory missions, people's eyes sometimes glaze over because it's hard to sort of run down each one of those 11. Uh, so what I have said is that we protect America from threats delivered by the sea. Uh, we protect those on the sea and we protect the sea itself. And I think that's the best way to sort of look at what the Coast Guard does and what our unique contribution is uh, to the joint force and especially uh, to uh, the sea services. I, I want to repeat that because I, I actually want to remember it and say it again afterwards. So threats to Americans that come from the sea or come by the sea, uh, threats to Americans from the sea itself. In other words, that's the search and rescue. That's, you know, you're you're off the coast of San Diego and, you know, something happens to your boat and you're in a storm. And the those Coast Guard's going to... Yeah, yeah, right, right. And then, and then the threats... Uh, threats to the sea itself, um, right. and so that's protecting the sea and the maritime resources, the uh, the natural resources in the sea. That's a that's a great way to describe it. Well, sir, that leads us to um, you know the next question and the next really the the crux of having you on the show today is that last year the Coast Guard released a new strategy. I invite our audience to check it out. We've got the link. Um, our producer is going to put the link up on the page here, but. Um, uh, there's a chart in that strategy that shows uh, some a number of the forces that are impacting or pressurizing the Coast Guard. And it also shows the goals the Coast Guard has set for itself. Can you describe some of those forces and the demand signals uh, on the Coast Guard? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I would commend our Coast Guard strategy to anybody. I think it captures uh, who we are as a Coast Guard and uh, where we want to go. So what the Commandant charged us with uh, when she uh, assumed command is to take a look at all of those factors that influence who we are as a Coast Guard and where we need to position ourselves to stay ahead of whatever those dynamics are that we defined. And so in the strategy, you'll see how we've broken down all of those factors. There are certainly environmental factors that come into play. Uh, you can look at the effects of climate change, migrating fish stocks, for example, sea level rise, those things. That's a, a dynamic that the Coast Guard is going to have to position itself for. Uh, there have been dramatic changes in the geopolitical landscape uh, with China as a pacing threat. If you just look at what's happening in Europe uh, with Russia's unjustified invasion of Ukraine, uh, you look at opening uh, avenues of commerce in the Arctic. Uh, those are all factors that are shaping uh, where we need to be positioned as a Coast Guard in the future. And the takeaway from that is tomorrow looks different and so will we. And that is what the strategy is about. Interesting. So, um, you know, a lot of leaders will say nothing gets done without the people. So let's start with the the people part of the strategy, which I think in the, in the, in the document is titled, you know, transform our total workforce. So how's it looking for recruiting and retention in the Coast Guard this year? You know, the rest of the joint force, as uh, General um, Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, mentioned in a proceedings article in November, the rest of the joint force is really struggling with recruiting and retention. So what are the, some of the, um, the most salient personnel initiatives that are happening in the Coast Guard? Well, thanks for highlighting this. This is a, a, an issue for us a, as well. I think most people are surprised to find that the Coast Guard also has a re recruiting challenge, but we like any employer competing for, for talent. 
And we have to be an organization that reflects the society that we serve. Uh, so right now we are carrying a gap in our enlisted workforce. We're carrying a gap in our civilian workforce. And uh, we also have uh, a small gap, uh, a growing gap, but still relatively small in our officer workforce. That is to say that we're hiring. If you want to join the Coast Guard, come on in. We want, we want to bring you on board and we have a, a unique way that you can contribute uh, to America's interest around the globe. Uh, but what we're doing to transform our total workforce is really look hard at how we can improve transparency, predictability, and stability for our workforce. That, that's what the workforce of today wants. They, they want more say in how they manage their career. Uh, they want more transparency in how decisions are made. And they want more stability. So we're, we're working through uh, all of our workforce policies and practices under sort of those first principles that you will. So some of the things we've, we've done uh, from a retention standpoint, and then I'll talk about recruiting in a second. From a retention standpoint, we've implemented a policy that allows people to opt out of promotion. You know, the military system, the system that we've had post-World War II is an up-route system. You came up for promotion at a certain time. If you didn't get selected, uh, it was usually considered a negative factor. Well, you know, sometimes people aren't ready to promote. Usually promotions come with transfers and, and they need some flexibility. So we've done that. Uh, the other thing we've done is, is we're looking at billet banding. So in our list of workforce, uh, we will have a, a billet a, a position that's for, let's say, a first class bosun mate. Well, why can't we put a second class bosun mate in there? Or why can't we just code this as a journeyman bosun mate? Uh, why do we have to zero in on actually the pay grade rather than the qualifications or the proficiency? And I think that's going to allow us some flexibility as well. You know, if you're a second class petty officer who makes first class, you're not necessarily going to have to transfer. Um, we're also building centers of gravity in the Coast Guard. Uh, I think of areas like Charleston, Seattle, Newport, Long LALB, uh, Pensacola. These are places we're investing to build Coast Guard centers of gravity that will give people an opportunity to serve afloat, then serve ashore, and then be, maybe go back afloat. And they can have stability. Uh, you know, it's going to help families. It's going to help spouses that, that want to pursue a career. And those are the kinds of things that we're doing. What, what we're trying to do is break down barriers to service. Uh, we're doing the same thing on the recruiting front. Uh, we have aligned our medical standards and our ASVAB standards to the other military services. That was a smart decision to do. We're bringing in high quality people, but we, we had to have alignment with the other military services. Uh, we're embarking on a new Coast Guard recruiting campaign. We're branding ourselves in a way maybe that speaks differently to young men and women out there who are making a life choice on, you know, what what career they want to pursue. Uh, one of the other things that we're, we're doing is um, we're, we're trying to put technology in the hands of our recruiters. You know, right to this point, you've had to come into the recruiting office. If they need more paperwork, you, you might have to come down. We're putting digital portable technology in the hands of our recruiters so they can go to somebody's home and say, hey, download all the paperwork, digitally sign here. We're, we're, we're trying to make it easier to come in uh, to the Coast Guard. We're also expanding opportunities for lateral entry. So if you have prior service experience and you want to come in the Coast Guard, we're going to find a way to expedite that entry into the Coast Guard. If you're somebody that has significant experience and one of the critical specialties that we need, let's say corpsman, 
or culinary specialist. If, if you're a nurse, you have experience, you want to come in, uh, we'll bring you in, we'll bring you in through boot camp, but then we'll have an agile approach to how you get rated. And then maybe you, you don't come in as a, as a seaman, you, 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 you come in as a second or third class petty officer based on your qualifications and experience. So those are the things that we're, we're trying to do, both from a recruiting and retention standpoint, is break down those barriers to service and, and let everybody know that if they want to serve in the Coast Guard, there is space for them and there is opportunity for them. Uh, that's great. I, I heard uh, you know, homesteading a little bit, uh, although you didn't use that word, but that ability to to have you know, in terms of a home base, both for seagoing operations, but then also for a shore tour follow on uh, that that is, uh, you know, w- one of the things that the Navy, I know, in, in the past has has struggled with as well for for enlisted retention and for officers, the ability to to be in one place buy a per, you know, purchase a home, perhaps do a couple tours there uh, without having to move on for your next tour. So I like that. Um, so the Coast Guard strategy states that from 2018 to 2021, uh, seven to ten percent of the Coast Guard deployed to support national incident responses. For example, the Southwest border crisis, major hurricane recovery efforts. Given your recruitment and retention challenges, is this level of response sustainable for your overall workforce? I think the best way to answer the question, Bill, is to to say, look, the demand for the Coast Guard has never been higher. Uh, the demand around the globe is exceptionally high. I think international partners see something unique and different in the Coast Guard. Uh, many of their greatest national security challenges are issues that we have particular expertise in addressing, uh, but domestically as well. Uh, there's a need for the Coast Guard, uh, whether it's incident management or incident management proficiency, uh, whether it's disaster response as, as a complement to that, or whether it's just the skills that we can bring in forming, organizing, and planning an incident uh, of national significance. So I, I think we bring a lot uh, to the table as a U.S. Coast Guard. Um, you know, we are well embedded within the interagency, uh, I think in, in a unique and different way, be just because of our, our mission set. We're a law enforcement agency, we're a humanitarian agency, we're a military service, we're a transportation safety agency. And, and that really gives us an entree into a lot of different aspects of the interagency. And then I think that in turn translates internationally. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. Um, could, could you just talk a little bit? Uh, I, I'm so, you know, intrigued by the enormity of the natural of the disaster that was Deepwater Horizon. And, and I mentioned earlier that you were the incident response commander for that. Yeah. How, how many how many months of 24 seven days did you have? And, uh, you know, how big was the the how, how many different people were part of that? Not only Coast Guard people, but I'm, I'm sure, you know, federal, local law enforcement and, and first responders. I mean, it must have just been an enormous effort. It, it was an enormous effort. and It was uh, a tragic disaster. I consider myself a Gulf Coast person. Uh, I have to be stationed down there, but it was my home as well. Uh, it, it wasn't just my duty station, it was my home. So, you know, maybe it, it affected me a little more personally, but I had responsibility for overseeing response, oil spill response operations in Mississippi, Alabama, and the Florida Panhandle. And um, I, I think at our zenith, we had more boats working for the response than were in the D-Day invasion. Just, just think about that in terms of scope and scale. Wow. Uh, with respect to our personnel complement, I think, uh, again, at our height, we had more than 20,000 people uh, just working for me as the incident commander across 
those three states. Uh, it was a very difficult response. It was like a new oil spill every day. Uh, it happened at a, a very difficult time of the year. Uh, it's hard to clean up uh, oil, you know, in 90 degree weather when it hits the beach. It's, it, it, and there are so many other complications. It was during a period of migrating fish stocks. Uh, it hit a lot of uh, sensitive habitats. Uh, but look, he, here's the message. I am proud of what the Coast Guard did. I'm proud of what our men, men and women did. Uh, and um, I, I stand by that. It was tough. It was hard. Uh, but I look back now with great pride and a sense of accomplishment. I, I can only imagine. I mean, I, I was out in Hawaii at the time and just following the news. And, and uh, you know, as you, as you point out, it, it was a it was an oil spill that happened every day, day after day after day. Right. It was, wasn't one ship that that, you know, had a spill. It was, you know, if you imagine you know, a string of ships day after day after day that had a massive oil spill. I, I just can't imagine, you know, how big an effort that was. And, um, you know, congrats on to you and your team for how you how you managed it, how you responded to it. Well, I, I appreciate that. It, and it was an interagency effort. So, you know, I, I don't want to minimize uh, the contributions of all the other federal, local and state agencies uh, that were involved. You know, we had a plan. Uh, this was a black swan event that we didn't fully anticipate, but our, our plan was sound. And uh, this was the success of many different people at many different levels, not just the Coast Guard. Um, and, and you know, as I talked about the response, let me also make clear that I am no way minimizing the impacts or the damage to those communities. It was profound, yeah, very significant and profound and heartbreaking. And I will let the scientists decide what the long-term effects are. Uh, but uh, where I sit right now, I'm very proud of the response and um, glad that I got a chance to be a part of protecting an area uh, that I know and love. Amazing. So, sir, I want to get back a little bit uh, to the, you know, the cutter force and to, to, uh, you know, personnel issues. One of the more talked about proceedings articles in the past decade uh, was then Lieutenant Commander Brian Smickless's article in 2015. It was titled Demise of the Cutterman. And I've, I haven't yet met a, um, a Coast Guardsman, a Coast Guard officer, uh, who was not aware of that article or, had, or had, had not read it. And there's been a few authors who have updated, you know, uh, Demise of the Cutterman 2, et cetera. Um, so uh, the, the, the basic issue was that it was hard to get, uh, you know, J.O. Cutterman to go back to sea, to, to maintain, to stay on that, that Cutter path, the, the Cutter career path. Um, are you still having trouble filling afloat billets in the Cutter fleet? And, and what are you doing to, to address the shortages there? Uh, going to sea is hard. Uh, you know that. Your audience knows that. Uh, we have a high op tempo in the Coast Guard. Uh, we work people hard there to afloat. And then we, we work them hard when they come in port, maintaining and sustaining uh, these legacy assets, some of which are, are more than 50 years old. Uh, so we're putting a lot of time and effort into how we can improve the experience of, of being afloat. And I think it's got several different steps to it. Um, one is we have to find incentives. I, I agree with that, uh, but I don't think we can buy our way out of this, this issue. What we have to do is talk about the experience and unique value that Cuttermen uh, provide to our Coast Guard. Look, we are a seagoing service. We always have been a seagoing service and we will remain a seagoing service. And so when we have people who are willing to take the time and publish articles 
that you referenced, I, that's very helpful because we get to hear what's on the mind of young Coast Guard men and women. Uh, there are some great recommendations in there and there were some perspectives that were really helpful to us as, as senior leaders. Um, so what we have to do is improve the experience. I'll tell you, one of the things that we're doing is recapitalizing our fleet. Uh, we are improving our cutters with greater habitability. We're providing the technology that our young men and women want, and we are improving the experience of, of being at sea. And I think that's going to really change the calculus. I, I'll share a, a story with you. I was at uh, Bill at Night at the Coast Guard Academy last year. Um, Bill at Night is where all the, the new graduates get their assignments. And not everybody was going afloat. Uh, we don't have enough seagoing uh, billets for the new ensigns at this point. Uh, we hope to get to that uh, in the future, much like when I graduated. Uh, but I will tell you, everybody that got an assignment afloat was absolutely thrilled. And uh, that was just refreshing for me to see. That was encouraging for me to see. And it was inspiring uh, for me to, to see as well. Um, you know, COVID was tough. It, it, it added on to the hardship of being at sea uh, because we weren't able to do port calls. Um, and we oftentimes had to put people on restrictions on movement to make sure that the crew was clean uh, before they got underway so we didn't have a COVID outbreak. Uh, we have turned the tide on that. Our crews are now having port calls, um, you know, and the experience just on board is, is healthy, it's good, it's productive. And I, I'm really excited about the future of our cutter fleet and the future of our cuttermen. Well, I haven't been able to visit one yet, but I've, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of the national security cutters, the offshore patrol cutter that's coming, the fast response cutter. Um, our Coast Guard federal executive fellow who's here with us now, uh, Lieutenant Commander Hulse, just came from commanding one of the fast response cutters over in Bahrain and his stories of that that ship and the capability uh, and, and the Navy's reaction to that ship and or those that class of ships is uh, is rather impressive. So I think you're right that recapitalizing your fleet, you know, who doesn't like the new car smell, right? Right. And uh, I don't think you mentioned it, but we're going to recapitalize our icebreaker fleet as well. We haven't right. built icebreakers in the, in the United States since the early 70s. So I think that's exciting. And we're also recapitalizing our inland construction tender fleet. We, we're calling them waterways commerce cutters, but these will recapitalize uh, those aging uh, construction tenders that you usually see on the intercoastal waterway or, or in, on the rivers. Oh, that's great. Uh, sir, one of the things that um, has been, you know, it gets a lot of ink in proceedings is, uh, is updating training. How do, you, how do you train people? How do you use new technology uh, to get people up to speed on, on high tech jobs or in, you know, things that are difficult, uh, you know, for example, bridge watch teams, right, and using simulators and that sort of thing. So um, I, I know that the Coast Guard has a, a web-based training infrastructure. Are there any plans to update that so that um, you can deliver tailored training and, and track completion to people um, it, it may be in ways that are outside of the standard schoolhouses or, or supplement the standard the schoolhouse environment? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, part of our total workforce transformation and our second line of effort under the strategy, sharpen our competitive advantage, um, is, is to move to a modernized ready learning system. It's how we deliver training and education uh, to our workforce. Now, COVID was hard, uh, but it, it really 
taught us a lot about how you could leverage virtual learning um, and, and what you could do through a blended environment and then what you really needed to do in person. So it's caused us to take a hard look at how we deliver uh, training. And at the same time, you know, we're, we're going through what we call Tech Revolution 2.0. And Tech Revolution 2.0 is all about leveraging new and better technology. Um, I, I am continually amazed at the ability of our workforce to use and absorb technology. You know, I'm a baby boomer. I came in through the analog Coast Guard. Um, but the, the way that our workforce can use and leverage technology is just amazing. And we deserve to give them that. And that's what we're doing. So we're going to do modernized ready learning. Uh, we're gonna, it's all about delivering training on time and on target in a way that best needs the needs, meets the needs of the workforce and the Coast Guard. Gotcha. I want to go back for a minute to uh, force strategy and, and recapitalizing the fleet. Um, I mentioned that the fast response cutters and, and you mentioned the Arctic secure Arctic security cutters. Um, um, can you share any updates on the uh, on the delivery timelines for the new polar security cutters, those icebreakers, and also the the offshore patrol cutters, the OPCs that are coming, uh, or the and you also mentioned the waterways commerce cutter, um, and and another question we haven't even talked about aircraft, um, but how how is the you know what what are some major things coming in terms of like deliveries of all those different uh, force recapitalization efforts? Uh, sure. Let me let me walk through all of those. And if I, I miss something, I'm happy to, to circle back. So let sure. me start with the offshore patrol cutter. Well, let me revise that. Let me start with the national security cutter. You mentioned the, the national security cutter. Incredible technology. I had a chance to go down to the Gulf Coast and recently and visit Huntington Angles, uh, where the ships are being built. I saw uh, number 10, um, and that's getting close to delivery. Um, I think we should see that delivered and hopefully commissioned uh, by the end of this summer. That's our hope. And then uh, Friedman will be number 11, uh, and, and that will complete the program record for the National Security Cutter. But just incredible technology. Uh, for me, who came into that analog Coast Guard, when I go on the bridge of these ships, it's like walking onto the bridge of the Star Trek, Starship Enterprise, right? It's, it's incredible. Um, and with the sensors and all the other electronics. On the offshore patrol cutter, uh, we are building four of the OPCs at Eastern Shipbuilding. Uh, Argus is coming together well. It looks good. I was just down there very recently to walk around the ship. I think it's going to be an incredible ship for us. And we're hopeful, hopeful that that'll get launched uh, here very soon. Um, uh, I, I don't have a, a firm date. Uh, we continue to work with the shipbuilder to, to finalize the date, but I, I think it'll be very soon. And then it'll be followed by two, three, and four. Uh, we did issue a contract to Austell and Mobile uh, that, to build up, up to 10 additional ones, number five through number 15. And we're very much at the early stages of, of that production right now. Uh, with respect to the fast response cutters, uh, we are full speed ahead on the FRCs. Uh, we're going to build a program record of 65. Uh, just incredible, incredible ships. Our, our folks love them. And uh, they are doing the hard work of the nation as we speak right now in the Caribbean and the Florida Straits and in other uh, areas uh, in the coastal environment. Just tremendous capability. And you mentioned the ones in Bahrain. Uh, yeah, how, how many are in Bahrain, sir? We've got six. We, we just put six new uh, fast response cutters in Bahrain and they are doing incredible, 
work. I, I will tell you, the Navy wants to continue to leverage that capability. And um, uh, th there's a huge appetite for Coast Guard in that region of the world. And we're happy to, to serve and, uh, uh, and, and we, we work with and under the Fifth Fleet over there. And it's an incredible capability that we've been able to provide to the Fifth Fleet and CENTCOM uh, since after 9-11. The waterways commerce cutters, uh, we just issued that, that contract recently, so we're very much at the beginning stages there. On the polar security cutter, uh, it is being built down in uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi. The shipyard that had the contract was Halter. They were recently acquired by uh, Bollinger. Uh, it's now Bollinger, Mississippi Shipyards. Um, we've had some very good conversations with them. We're hopeful to get to detailed design as soon as possible and uh, move that, uh, that cutter forward. Again, the Polar Security Cutter is a very complex ship. We haven't built these since the 70s, and we want to get it right. And so we're working very carefully with a shipbuilder on that. Um, Just a, a real quick question on that one, sir. So uh, it sounds like you have not yet started to bend steel for the Polar Security Cutter. Is that correct? That That's correct. Uh, what we're doing right now is we're working with a shipyard on uh, welding techniques. They've built some models. We hope to go into a prototype on uh, how some of that construction will be done. But, but again, this is a very complex ship. The, the thickness of the hull plating is so different than building a normal warship. It, yeah. It's not as easy to bend steel uh, at the thicknesses that we're talking about. So in many respects, uh, we are building an industrial capability in the United States that we just, we just haven't had. Um, so that's where we're at on the polar security cutter. Uh, you, you talked a bit about aviation. Um, we're trying to obviously build a fleet of C-130Js, incredible capability to replace uh, the aging C-130Hs. And importantly, uh, we're trying to accelerate our transition into the H-60 aircraft. Uh, not just H-60s, but H-60s with blade fold and tail fold capability so we can put them on the back of these new assets. How many helicopters you're talking about transitioning to the H-60s? Is that 60 helicopters, 100 helicopters? How big is? No, our our, our intent ultimately is to transition uh, out all the H-65s that currently exist in the fleet with H-60. It's going to take us some time. Right. You know, we're no, going to find how, the H-65 for until the 2030s, 2035, et cetera. But what we have to do is build the capability to transition to those H-60s. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not uh, familiar off the top of my head with how many helicopters the Coast Guard has. Uh, it, I, I don't have the number handy, but it, it's it's going to be the entire fleet of Coast Guard helicopters. And what we've got is a stage process on how we do that. We've already transitioned a number of air stations to the H-60. For example, Coast Guard's Air Station New Orleans, Air Station Barinkin. Those were H-65s that we've transferred transitioned to H-60s. And uh, we could just probably go down through every Coast Guard air station and, um, and, and talk about it. But we've got a plan to recapitalize uh, those airframes at each one of those, uh, those air stations. Uh, probably at the end of this, um, you know, what we're doing for the Rotary Wing Air Intercept Program in the National Capital Region, that may be one of the last capabilities to, to transition to the 60s. Uh, yeah. The 65 is well suited to that mission. So, you know, we'll probably put that at the end of the line. Um, and uh, probably our helicopter interdiction squadron. This is the, the helicopter interdiction squadron in, in Jacksonville that has the sharpshooters for the counter drug mission. Uh, again, those 65s are incredible assets. 
Uh, they can land on the back of ships right now. And until we get that blade fold, tail fold capability, uh, you know, we, we will continue to use the 65 there. But with respect to all the other air stations, we are on a pretty good pace to transition all of those to H-60s. Gotcha. All right, sir. Uh, so uh, my sense is that, you know, most Americans are, are aware of Coast Guard disaster response, search and rescue, counter drug operations. Those are, you know, pretty, pretty prevalent in the front page news. Right. Um, they get a lot of news coverage. Let's talk about something that gets fewer headlines, which is the maritime transportation system. What is it and why is it important to the American people? Yeah, well, thanks for the question. I mean, the marine transportation system is really the lifeblood of the U.S. economy. It's the lifeblood of the global economy. This is, uh, you know, the pathways in through the ports, uh, into the internal waterways systems to move goods, uh, cargo, et cetera. And, you know, I, I say every state is a port state. If you're in Oklahoma and you go shopping at Walmart, you're a port state because the stuff that you buy in Walmart came in through a U.S. port. Uh, somewhere. And most people don't probably understand and appreciate uh, that it's the Coast Guard's responsibility to ensure the safety and security, not only of the port, but also of the ships coming in. So it's a safety and security mission, but it's also a facilitation mission. And we do that by overseeing and inspecting ships, making sure that port facilities and ships meet the applicable uh, domestic and international security and safety standards. We do that by maintaining all of the ACE to navigation. We call it the ACE to navigation constellation. Uh, so if you, you're driving by a buoy, a red or a green buoy, it's the Coast Guards who's, who's placed it there, uh, or a day board, a marker. And that's whether it's in a port or whether it's on one of the inland rivers. If you're coming down the Mississippi and you see a buoy or a day marker, the Coast Guard put it there. And most people probably aren't aware of what we do uh, to facilitate the economic engine of America. I, I, you know, I often go out to cruise and I say, hey, how, how do you define yourself? And, and to a person, they say, well, we're in the Coast Guard. I say, well, I want you to take a different approach. Next time somebody asks you what you do, say you keep America open for business because that's what we do in the marine transportation system. Uh, maybe a, a, a lesser known function that we do as well for the marine transportation system is domestic icebreaking. People I think generally understand that, you know, we are America's maritime governance force in the high latitudes, whether it's the Arctic or the Antarctic, but they may not be aware that we do the ice breaking on the Great Lakes. And, you know, the Great Lakes is the heartland of America. Uh, the amount of commodities that come down through the Great Lakes into the inland uh, river system is huge. And we break the ice during the winter months to keep commerce flowing. Uh, I think of New England, the home heating oil that moves up the Hudson or into those ports in New England is because the Coast Guard's up there breaking ice that allows that commerce to move. If you take a ferry to work in Boston, we're breaking the ice to make sure that you can get to work. Uh, and those are things that people generally probably don't appreciate uh, about the Coast Guard. Yeah, it's like uh, you know driving on a good highway. When it's a good highway, you, you just take it for granted. When it's right. when it's when it's got a lot of potholes, you start to complain about it, right? And and, and then start to notice it. But exactly. I think that's a great point about you know things that happen in our country uh, that that uh, people just you know sort of take for granted and and without realizing you know who protects it, uh, who keeps it open, who keeps it open for business. Yeah. Um, so we got time for just one more question. I want to ask you. Um, where do you see mission growth for the Coast Guard in the remainder of this decade? 
you know, there's been a lot of news about Coast Guard overseas deployments. We already talked about the FRCs in Bahrain. You know, uh, a lot of uh, USNI news readers have have seen Coast Guard cutters like Bertolf, you know, doing Taiwan Straits transits and doing some of the IUU fishing um, uh, enforcement work over in the South China Sea, for example, with allies and partners. So, you know, do you see more counter drug, more overseas deployments? Um, you know, where's the growth areas? I, I think you hit on a lot of those areas. And I, I said at the outset that we are in a higher level of global demand than, than I've ever seen. And I think in large part, that's because uh, of illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. Uh, these are issues of greatest national security concerns to many of our, many of our vital partners around the globe. Uh, people that come into exclusive economic zones and illegally fish, it's an affront to sovereignty, it undermines sovereign rights, and it undermines the rule of law and good maritime governance. And that's what we provide. And so partners want to work with us. Uh, they find that uh, with respect to their interest, it's not necessarily building a blue water Navy. It's about building a Coast Guard-like capability to protect their sovereignty and their, their sovereign rights. And it's also a hedge against great power competition. You know, if somebody's able to secure their own national interest and we can help them do that, uh, I think that's just for the better of everybody. And so we see a growing demand in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, we see a growing demand in the African continent, especially in the Gulf of Guinea. Uh, we see a growing demand in the Arctic and, and Antarctic as well. And, and again, we have to be present. Presence matters. It matters to our partners. It builds confidence. And it helps them build a capability so that together uh, we can ensure uh, the rule of law. Uh, so I continue to see growth in our international engagements, but we're going to do it in a way that builds capability, uh, not resets capability. And, and that's important. Um, if we're going to provide that increasing demand, then we as a nation need to build that capability in our U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, I, I think, you know, we'll always be focused on the Western Hemisphere. Uh, transnational organized crime uh, is increasing, not abating, and uh, we're going to continue to attack transnational organized crime. Again, that that is an issue that undermines stability, the rule of law, and creates security concerns for our neighbors here in the Western Hemisphere and for us in, in the homeland. Uh, so I think we will always need to be positioned uh, to be America's Maritime Disaster Response Force. We're committed to doing that. Um, and I think that will continue to uh, to be the focus of, of our posture in the future. And uh, right now, uh, you know, we are seeing uh, near unprecedented levels of irregular maritime migration. And for us, this is a life-saving mission. Uh, we want to be there to rescue people who have taken to sea, to the sea in vessels that should never be at sea. And so we're working with the interagency to to address those issues. But our focus is on rescuing people at sea uh, so that we can return them safely back to their country of, of origin. Great points. Well, sir, thank you for your time today and thank you for what you do, but but more broadly, what the Coast Guard does for you know U.S. Uh, national security and, and global security as well. Uh, my guest today has been the vice commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Stephen Poulin. Admiral, thanks for your time today, and I hope to get a chance to meet you in person soon. Absolutely. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And right. we're hiring. We're hiring. You're hiring. The Coast Guard is hiring. I, I, that's a great, great story. All right, sir. 
Uh, well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, like us, subscribe to our channel, tell your friends, become a member at usni.org forward slash join. And until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.